this place is special. Get asked all the time, where's your favorite place to take college game day? And I say every time, Eugene, Oregon. Yes. This is the best crowd. Honestly, it's six in the morning here. Yeah. It's dark. Yeah. It's raining. They don't care. <laughs> These fans right here, pound for pound, are as good as any college football fans in the country. This program is staged to compete and to win championships. Oregon is going to be in the championship game. Can you believe the magical season this has become? When we watch this film, does our effort beat theirs? Here's Bo Nix. Guns been making deposits. Time to cash the check. Sound at Austin, which is deafening for an Oregon 15-point win. Chip Kelly still does not have a win against his former school, and we say farewell. Man, it feels great to be a duck. Welcome to the QB11 Show, presented by Scoop Duck, with Doug, Andrew, and J-Hop. Here are the guys with the latest scoop. Good morning and welcome back to the QB11 show presented by Scoop Duck. I am Doug Scott, joined as always by Andrew, QB11. Good evening. Good morning. Good evening. Morning when people listen, evening when we're recording. I was going to say, you said good morning and I was like, uh, okay. It's it will be for our listeners. Yeah, that, that's a good point. But yeah, good good afternoon, evening, morning, uh, whenever you're listening to this. Welcome back to the show. Um, I think this is probably one of the more highly anticipated episodes that we do on a yearly basis is our uh, Oregon roster preview with Hithla Day. So we obviously do a uh, post-spring and pre-spring, and now we're going to do our preseason. And so, Hithla Day, welcome back. Uh, thanks. Nice to be here. Tell all our listeners, uh, as always, where to find your work. Uh, I am the managing editor for Addicted to Quack. Uh, it's a website. Uh, we write about the Oregon Ducks, uh, all the athletic programs that the Ducks sponsor. Uh, I'm the football film reviewer. Um, we are staffing up uh, with the move to the Big 12. Uh, we are hiring. Uh, if you want to okay. contact me, uh, send me your resume. Um, my uh, Twitter handle is uh, Hithloday1. That's H-Y-T-H-L-O-D-A-Y, the numeral one. Um uh, and I, I promise I'm a good follow on Twitter. I won't abuse your time. Um, and uh, I also host a podcast. It's called uh, It Never Rains on this podcast. Yeah, Which I will absolutely out. abuse your time. So if you follow me, just be aware that I will abuse your time on timeline. <laughs> yeah, okay. and, and QB likes to cash receipts um, at, at the appropriate times, Indeed. which of lately there's been some of those. But we're not going to go there because uh, we're talking football. Uh, we're putting all the other stuff behind us for this episode. We promised our listeners Hithel Day was coming back on, and here he is. We're actually going to going to have him on for a couple episodes in a row. First to talk all things offense with QB and myself, and then we'll have a second episode that will come out, you know, midweek or later over the next weekend, where we'll talk about the defensive side of the ball. So that will uh, will generate a lot of content as we're here in fall camp season and the with the, the first game against Portland State fast approaching. So without further ado, uh, let's just go ahead and dive right into it. And we're going to start on the offensive side of the ball and maybe we'll do a little round robin to start just kind of like set the table a little bit like an overview of, you know, the offense uh, as we see it with obviously new offensive coordinator Will Stein replacing Kenny Dillingham. Bo Nix is back. Uh, got some new faces, got a lot of returning faces. So let, let's start there. Um, you know, Hithelday, why don't you go ahead and lead us off with your kind of general overview of the offense? 
Uh, well, I wrote an article about Will Stein. I, I reviewed all his film at UTSA. Uh, his um, his season was very interesting. He went through, uh, you know, uh, he UTSA's uh, offense was, I believe, ranked number twenty six in F plus, which was about fifty ranks better than their team talent composite in two four seven. It was an interesting season because uh, they went through multiple injuries on their offensive line and then got better, and so he changed the offense multiple times um, in terms of how they used their run game and the RPO game. Um, they had an, uh, a quarterback who uh, Frank Harris, uh, who was pretty good, um, but sort of at, at other times had limited. Um, they had a bunch of really good wide receivers and he knew it, uh, used them well. It was an RPO based 11 personnel offense, about uh, 84% of snaps. Um, and, uh, it reminded me quite a bit of the offense that Oregon has been running, you know, different permutations under, uh, Joe Moorhead and under, uh, Kenny Dillingham. I don't really anticipate a whole lot of changes, you know, fundamentally, uh, you know, obviously every play, play caller is a little different. Um, but it's a, you know, it's a wide open modern, uh, offense. Uh, I am not expecting any real difficulties installing it, um, or calling it. Um, it probably will see less, uh, tight end usage or less heavy personnel. Kenny Dillingham was using 12 personnel or heavier on about a third of all snaps last year. Uh, that's probably going away under, um, Will Stein. But other than that, uh, you know, I, I, I first, you know, structurally, schematically, I, I foresee no reason to think that this offense uh, is going to slow down at all. Um, I rather like it. Yeah, just kind of playing off what Hitzleday said, I think that some of what Dillingham did last year in regards to personnel, I think, was just in, due to the fact that I think we had a really deep and talented tight end room. And this year, I don't, I will get to the actual personnel in that room not too long from now, but. I'm not nearly as um, sold on the depth available. And so I don't think that you're going to be in a position where you're pushing to put multiple of them on the field at the time, uh, except for situationally when, when it calls for it. Um, I think with the, the additions in the transfer portal, the receiver position, um, you're going to probably be playing a lot more 11 personnel base, which makes sense both based off of what Stein's done historically, but also what Oregon has on the roster. So um, looking forward to seeing, what wrinkles he installs my understanding is they're playing off all of the same um terminology that was used last year just in, um, a lot of the same base concepts uh but he's just going to bring his wrinkles and obviously offenses are iterative right so uh every offseason teams are making adjustments adding in new stuff um looking to to capitalize where on things that they weren't as good good at last year the thing I'll say, you know, from talking to uh, when I wrote my article about Stein, I interviewed um, Greg Luca from the San Antonio Express News, uh, who's their beat reporter. And the impression that I got from talking to Greg was that uh, Stein is a young man, used to be Louisville's quarterback. Um, uh, and, uh, he's very analytically driven. Um, and, you know, it was very clear, uh, that he responded to his evolving offensive line situation. That's like way more deep of a situation than I can get into in this podcast. You can dig up my article, um, and, and read about it, but like he responded to the facts on the ground. Like he wasn't like trying to push an agenda or like, well, I only know how to do one thing, like some crusty old coach with a buzz stuck cutter, you know, or something like that. Like, uh, you know, and, and that definitely like from what I have seen of Lanning and his relationship with Dillingham and basically his like entire approach to playing football strategically. Um, yeah. 
uh, approaching the game analytically um, as opposed to ideologically uh, is his bag. Um, and so, you know, if something's not working, he changes it. I appreciate that. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I think that is certainly something that should help, right? I mean, you know, you, you think about a situation like last year where Bo Nix goes down and, and do you have the ability to pivot to something? And I'm not saying that, that Kenny didn't do that either, but, you know, there's probably more drastic versions of that, like what happened uh, at UTSA where that, that, that ability to pivot or, or willingness to pivot often is not there for some or just coaches, the opportunity so. to take advantage of something once it becomes available and not just you know the 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 flip side of that coin is like if you have the ability to 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 do something better than what you were doing you know you don't have to stick with you know with the b plan when the a plan becomes available go for it you know like yeah well, man it also takes like it takes talent right like you have to have a position that you're like good at and for utsa they were phenomenal at receiver and they had a good quarterback and so like if you're going to make adjustments you can't be bad everywhere and i think the one thing that's cool about that is he's inheriting an oregon roster offensively where there's no shortage of skill talent really anywhere and so it's it's going to be less about what he has to do given with the talent that he's going to be using it's going to be what he kind of wants to do um, and then obviously you want to tailor your offense to what your quarterback and your players do best, uh, but he's going to have the opportunity to be balanced. And so I'm going to yeah. be really intrigued to see like what those run pass splits look like, what kind of run concepts he favors. There was a lot of um, a lot of stuff that was new last year with Clem and um, and Dilly that I don't know if it's going to be the same this year with. Yeah. Uh, Terry and Stein in the run game. So yeah, um, or I'm even looking forward to seeing what his preference is, right? Because last year it was, he was very much so dictated based off what was available um, at UTSA. They had a, like their scarcity in regards to resources there offensively, uh, but they did have an, they had a really elite receiving room for that level. And frankly, probably for any level um, and they had a good quarterback and they leaned on that heavily. Well, and, and just like a little more detail to, to clue people in what we're talking about at the beginning of the year, like all he had was a quarterback and some good wide receivers. And so all the offense was, was a bunch of short passes. And then the second part of the year, the offensive line gets a little healthier. And I mean, I've never seen this before. He introduces an RPO playbook in like week six of the season. And like the, you know, the percentage of RPO plays that he's running goes up by like 47%. Like it was just like, I've never seen it where, you know, and, and it's because he suddenly has an offensive line that can execute that sort of stuff. And suddenly yeah. he's winning the box count and suddenly he can, you know, he can actually win in the run game, not because, you know, he, he has a, an explosion of talent or anything because he can control the box count with the RPO game that he couldn't before, you know, he didn't just stick with, well, you know, I got some NFL wide receivers like he really truly did you know he he took advantage of the opportunity to do something you know to to deepen his his possibilities and add a run dimension you know through controlling the passing game uh in a different way because his his offensive line got healthier and he was able to do that which is like oh man that was cool to watch and assuming that he enjoys using the rpo in order to do that like boy does he have a good quarterback um to, yeah. to execute the rpo and that's something that like we really didn't lean that heavily on last year it, it was yeah. it was obviously part of the offense but it wasn't a, like it wasn't a staple in the way it was for utsa last year so i think the other thing i'm interested to see is you know i think obviously the offense has strengths and multi-facets but 
not you know the ability not just what you prefer to do because i think that's cool but also like how does he tailor and how do the rest of the offensive staff tailor the game plan week to week to the matchup advantages that are presented to them um and see how that differs a little bit maybe from last year or maybe it's more of the same but i mean that's I think the, it's, that's the yeah, million dollar question you, i mean you just don't know the answer to that i mean like that's the difference between elite play callers and good play callers and you just don't know the answer to that question until they start calling games i think yeah. with that note we're uh we should move into the position breakdowns and we're going to work this group by group. We'll start obviously with the quarterback room, you know, pretty obviously the starter is going to be, uh, you know, I think if we have anything on either Novasad or, or Ty, it's going to be pretty limited, but certainly willing to hear anything either of you have to say there. I know our listeners would be too, because if, if Bo was to have an injury or had to miss some time, then obviously Oregon season is going to heavily lean on, on the backup. Uh, so let's get into quarterback uh, QB. You want to go first this time? Sure. Um, I, I guess we'll start at the back of the room and work forward. Um, Austin Novosad, true freshman from Texas, after the departure of uh, Dante Moore last year, um, he was flipped from Baylor. Um, just a, a long-term relationship with Will Stein, um, having deep roots in that area, going all the way back to when he was in like seventh or eighth grade. So, um, big pickup. He was a four-star, uh, a four-star player coming out of high school. Played in the Army All-American game. Um, was here for spring too, and we didn't get to see a ton of him. He was a freshman. He he looked like he was a little bit of a fish out of water in the spring. I don't anticipate he's going to be someone that factors heavily into the into the rotation at quarterback this year because there is no rotation as long as Bo's healthy. Um, but again, upside depth. If that's your QB three, it's probably a good place to be in because it's really tough to maintain four or five quarterback rooms nowadays. Um, and then be, beyond him, you obviously have Ty Thompson, who's been on the roster for a while, uh, played played sparingly in garbage time, uh, obviously came in at the very end of the uh, Washington game last year. I have not uh, – I don't have as much confidence, and it's pretty clear that the staff, at least last year, didn't have as much confidence in his ability to, to run the offense. Uh, it seems that we, we tried to get kind of gadgety when he was in the game last year, and frankly, I think it made him look worse than he is. Um and then uh, Bo Nix returning, the, the, the big kind of coup of the offseason. Uh, really, really talented quarterback. But the question is, is how does he look in this new system? And I guess my answer to that is I don't think the system's all that new. I just think it's going to be some additional wrinkles. So um, I'm really excited to see what Bo can do. I, I hope that we don't rely on his legs heavily this year because I think keeping him upright is the key to the season. Yeah, I have no doubts at all about Nix um, and really no comments at all about Nick's, you know, I, I, I put my marker down, uh, more than a year ago about Nick's, you know, when I, cause I'd written pretty extensively about Auburn for a, a variety of reasons. Um, uh, you know, that, that I thought that Auburn was pretty severely underutilizing him, uh, for, for, the the pieces and the play callers around him I, I thought were terrible and that he would thrive at Oregon because all of those things um, were going to be drastically improved at Oregon and hey presto it's exactly what happened and uh, unlike QB I generally don't keep receipts and and uh, but um, maybe on on that question I did um, uh, and, and yeah uh, you know I, I have no reason to doubt that he's going to do just fine in Will Stein's uh, system. I, I don't, I don't anticipate there being any, you know, changes at all. I, I think that he's matured into uh, quite a fine uh, quarterback uh, in terms of the backup situation. Um, you know, uh, Ty Thompson, 
I, I I made it a project to watch every single one of his throws and every spring game and every backup rep that he's had. It took me a day to do it. Like he just, we have no practical film and QB's point is a good one. Like the, the he's never been given like the real offense. It's always been really gadgety stuff and it does make him look worse than you. Like he's, he's kind of a snake bit quarterback, you know, like, you know, like he'll have passes batted down. It's not because he threw the ball poorly. It's because the defense sort of knew what was going to happen and they would get in the way and knock the ball down. Um, and, and stuff like that, you know, otherwise, and it's like, I think the film in a sense is unfair to him. I think it's also true that he's never been given the offense to run. And so as an empiricist, like I, I am not able to say this quarterback stinks because I don't have fair film in order to say that with, on the other hand, like it's also true that two different staffs haven't ever given him the whole offense to run. And that when Bo Nix was gimpy, their answer to that was to put in gimpy Bo Nix. So to the extent that you want to make inferences, I don't know, man, I really don't. And, uh, you know, I, I think that Oregon fans probably have to face up to the fact that, like, uh, you know, there are other quarterback rooms in the Pac-12 that, you know, if their starting quarterback gets injured, like they have more comfortable options, you know, like Arizona State and Washington, you know, have comfortable, not great, but comfortable, you know, backup quarterbacks to put in. Oregon doesn't have a comfortable quarterback, you know, to put in. Um, and so I think it's imperative uh, to keep Bonix healthy. And I think that uh, it's probably the case that the, you know, the, the offensive play caller should probably go easy on him. You know, I, I didn't love how many plays Dillingham was asking, you know, Nick's to, to charge right into battle. Yeah, yeah I on think that, one of the things with sorry, sorry, Doug, I'm, I don't want to cut you off, but really quick, I it's one of the things that I really like about Stein's offense. I think instead of using his legs as the equalizer, the run, the run numbers equalizer, just tagging RPOs and using that, especially with again a deeper, more talented and explosive wide receiver room, to me that makes more sense, and I think it's more of a uh, it's a, it's a more sustainable way of keeping him healthy. Yeah, I was just going to add on, if you take out the Eastern Washington game, which he only played part of, and then the, obviously the the three games after he got hurt, he averaged eight and a half rushes per game. Uh, and a couple of those obviously are scrambles, but but most of them were not. And and it got actually uh, more and more and more toward the back half of the season before that injury. He had, he had 12 against Cal, nine against Colorado, 10 against Washington, including obviously the, the, the ill-fated injury one. And, and that... To me, that just when you have when you have a stable of running backs like we do, who are dying for more carries, like when your quarterback's sucking up ten a game, um, and again, I'm you know, there's obviously options there, right, where he's reading the defense and making that call. But I think your point, uh, QB, about RPOs versus run pass option versus quarterback running back option is, is a better way to go, and especially with how imperative, as you said, Hith, it is to keep Bonix healthy this year. I really want to see that number of rushes you know, drop down, you know, considerably. Anything more on quarterbacks from either one of you? No, I think this is like probably the most straightforward room on the roster. It's like Bonix yeah. is really, really good. Keeping him healthy is really important. Ty Thompson has been hit or miss in his limited reps. Austin Novus adds a true freshman that we really don't know a lot about. So um, I'm ready to move on if, if Hithlade is. Yeah. All right, let's do it. Uh, let's move on to the running back room. There's five uh, five players in this room, including three returners and two true freshmen. 
uh, we, you know, name obviously the names Bucky Irving, Noah Whittington as the returning kind of one A and one B, if you will, in, in the way that they split the carries last year, and then uh, or one and two slightly behind, and then you've got obviously Jordan James, who was kind of the goal line short yardage back last year, very limited role. Uh, who splashed some potential in in a few opportunities to to see it in, more in between the twenties, and then of course the true freshman Dante Dowdell and uh, Jaden Lamar. So um, Hithliday, why don't you lead this one off? You know, I don't know how much I have to say about this room. It's kind of crazy. Like uh, you know, Irving and Whittington are are excellent backs. You know, I think it's the best one two punch in the conference by a large measure. I- I'm. I'm honestly not certain what Jordan James potential is because, or what his skill set is because he was used so much as that short yards back. And like in those I formation plays the Dillingham, uh, uh, you know, would try it out, which were, you know, fun to watch. Uh, um, but like, I, I sort of don't think that, uh, what Stein is going to use him. So it's, you know, I'm not sure how, you know, how he is going to be used. I also don't, I'm not sure how the true freshmen are going to be used, if at all, like any other team in the conference, you know, with with the that trio of running backs, these guys would just redshirt. But like kind of their talent is such that it's hard for me to think that they're going to stay off the field. And, you know, kind of the era of football that we're in, like why redshirt anybody? Um you know, uh, it's interesting about the freshman, you know, Lamar totally fits the body type that it's very clear that Coach Lachlan, uh, you know, want, prefers. Um, and Dowdell doesn't at all. I mean, holy cow, the dude is six foot two. You know how many teams in the Pac-12 would kill for a six foot two receiver, you know, right now? <laughs> like, and Oregon's got him in a running back. Um, yeah, there's a bunch of different options for this. I really don't know how this room goes at all. I mean, other than the fact that Whittington and Irving, you know, are, are, are great backs there's you know that's a wonderful starting point to have and then where it goes from there i don't know beats me a lot of good places yeah i mean i think this room is really really strong i think it's pretty easily the best in the conference um bucky is probably your clear number one but i don't think that noah whittington really gives up a lot to bucky in terms of ability so um those two as your one two punch is probably the strongest one two punch we've had since the barner james or barner dat combinations back in the day um when it gets to jordan james i've heard like unbelievably good things about his development this offseason i think i've heard that he's going to be really hard to keep off the field and that he's actually probably the most talented guy in that room Hmm. so the question is is like how does his role evolve and how do they find ways to get him touches do we play more 21 personnel play with two backs um and and if he is playing more of a prominent primary role does that clear the way for someone like Dante Dowdell with the size that you discussed um, getting on the field more as maybe that like I formation short yardage back just due to the fact that he's pretty easily the most uh, gifted size wise back on the team. Um, and then, yeah, Jaden Lamar, I think he is probably in line for a red shirt if I had to guess, but he's got a good skill set. Uh, I just think he's, he's in a situation where he's in a really experienced and deep room and his skill set is more like the other guys, whereas Dowdell has the ability to separate yeah. himself with a unique skill set. Yeah, Lamar, Lamar replicates uh, uh, Irving and Whittington, whereas James and Dowdell are sort of their own cats. Um, I, I really don't know how this goes. I, you know, it's it's a pretty interesting room there there's a bunch of different options the other thing is in terms of catching balls out of the out of the backfield you know this is a pretty extensively used you know Irving and Whittington were extensively used last year and uh 
in Stein's offense at UTSA, that was a little less true. Now that was largely because his wide receiver room was just phenomenal. Um, but like, uh, I, that's something that I'm definitely going to keep my eye on because these guys definitely have hands. Um, and, and Dowdell's size in particular is, you know, like I said, you'd be a wide receiver if you wanted to. Um, yeah, it, it's a, it's a really intriguing option. Yeah. I think that the running backs are still going to be used out of the backfield. I could actually see those roles expanding. Um, sure. And and the thing that again I just keep coming back to with this room is that there's there's so much depth and there's so much talent. Like running backs, like you're gonna have injuries in this room. Like guys, and again, I'm not saying that guys are gonna tear their ACLs and miss the season, but like knock on wood, you don't want that to happen. But guys are gonna get dinged up, right? And so the fact that you're running five deep with talented players, um, and specifically three deep with guys that are super experienced um, players, and again, I know that. Jordan James wasn't getting a lot of run as a primary back, but I, I do think he was, um, I, I think his experience, especially I think the North Carolina game, he started to get more run as like a primary open field back. Yeah. Um, I, I think that that's going to be really valuable. Yeah. I don't know who the worst running back in this room is, but whoever he is is a starter on every Pac-12 team. Yeah, I think on most, like Damian Martinez is a pretty good player. There's some good backs in the league, but I think that... I, any one of these guys has a better top end speed than Damian Martinez. Oh, for sure. Uh, Absolutely. I, yeah, I probably would admit, I'd say, you know, even the fifth the fifth guy in this room is is in the rotation at every school in the Pac-12. Yeah, for sure. That's not debatable. I mean, this this room is substantially more talented than, than, than its peers um, around the country. None of them's Mel what? Renfro, though, guys. Uh, Mel Renfro <laughs> kept getting left off your, all you guys' lists of your best running backs. It was unbelievable. There was a few. There was a few people that had Renfro on. I think in it's terms, just recency bias, right? In terms of uh, uh, adjusted yards per carry, value over contemporary replacement, which is the only appropriate way to evaluate running back. <laughs> Mel Renfro is one of the top five okay. running backs of You're going to have time. to explain that to our listeners first. Say that value over that is. right the the term explains itself uh no, no, no. he was the, running the in, part uh, uh, yards per carry also explains itself uh no, you said adjusted yards per carry it means you cap all runs at 40 yards uh the uh uh he was running from 61 to 63 and still averaged 5.7 yards per carry which is an astonishing accomplishment uh uh yeah uh, Mel Renfro. How, oh my what? god! Did he, did he, he just played... not carry the ball very often? He only had fifteen hundred mm. yards in three seasons. Uh, he was a two-way player. He also played cornerback. Uh, he played cornerback in the league for fourteen years. Yeah, no, I knew that part. Running. That's why. That's why the running back part, like, I kept catching me off guard because I'm like, he's a defensive back. Why? Are, why? You know, two hundred sixty nine oh. carries ran five point seven yards per carry. I don't know what to tell you. He's one. He's top five back of all time value of a replacement. Fair enough. And, okay. Well, Mel Renfro. He right, broke the it. color barrier at Rice Stadium. Got a standing ovation. I'm still not putting him in my top five, but I consider putting him in my top ten after hearing this. That that last part's pretty pretty cool. Um, yeah, it's really I'm going cool. to. Send us to a quick ad break, and then after that, we will start talking about pass catchers. All right, and welcome back to the QB11 show with Hithliday and, of course, QB11. We're breaking down the Oregon offensive roster, and we're moving on now to the uh, wide receiver room. Lots of 
new faces here, lots of returning faces here. I think we'll uh, have a lot to talk about in this room. There's a lot of competition. Um, yeah, there's, you there's a lot of competition, but yeah, there's a lot of competition, but one thing's for certain, like the number one guy on the outside is locked in and there's no questions about who that is. Um, and that's Troy Franklin. And frankly, I think he's probably, I mean, I think he's pretty easily the best coming into a season, the best number one outside receiver that we've had. It, it's been a long time, Hith. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that? I can't think of a better one. Yeah. It's been, it's been a long time since Oregon's been this good on the outside. Um, Troy Franklin, and then uh, the additions uh, through the portal of Gary Bryant, uh, Treshawn Holden, and Tez, uh, Tez Johnson. I think that Tez ultimately ends up starting in the slot, uh, and I think that Treshawn Holden starts opposite on the outside of our guy, Troy Franklin. Hmm. Uh, beyond that, there's good depth with uh, guys like Chris Hudson. Uh, we, we discussed Gary Bryant, um, Jurion Dickey, Kyler Casper coming off a red shirt. Uh, and then some other guys, Justice Lowe and Ashton Cozart, some some young guys. The Holden is in, there's a okay. So you've got some guys who definitely need to play uh, on the outside, like uh, Troy Franklin, like Jurion Dickey, like Kyler Casper, Justice Lowe, Ashton Cozart. Like they're too big. Like they have to play on the outside, right? Uh, you've got some guys who have to play on the inside because of their size too, right? Tez Johnson has to play on the inside. Gary Bryant, I did a whole film study project on Gary Bryant. Please don't play him on the outside. USC yeah, tried. Yeah, USC tried in 2021 because Clay Helton had their roster all screwed up. I, I wrote a whole project about it. Don't do it. Uh, he's fantastic on the inside. In fact, I, I'm I'm not... I, uh, uh, I am not positive that Tez Johnson wins that job. I think that Gary Bryant's going to give him a good fight. I actually think they're just going to platoon him. Um, yeah, I was going to say, I think they're both going to play a ton. I don't know who the starter is really matters. I think yeah, exactly. I, I think that's an academic question. Um, uh, the, um, I am not certain. They're, the interesting thing are the two swing guys um, who are uh, Chris Hudson and uh, Treshawn Holden. Um, Chris Hudson is 5'11", um, and I think, QB, you've said this in the past, and I agree with you, that like from his film, and he's been playing since 2020, I think he plays better on the inside, but he's played so extensively on the outside, including last year when he was Oregon's second leading receiver and was playing outside pretty extensively, catching balls from Bo Nix, um, that like in a pinch, he can play outside just fine. Um, and then there's Treshawn Holden, who's sort of like the inverse guy. He's 6'3". You know, he's a big dude. But all of his film, including the Oregon spring game this year, is like an inside uh, possession receiver, kind of like Taj Washington in, at, at USC. And, and the only thing I'll say about that, though, Hith, is that like he's playing on the inside in the spring game, but he's usually playing as the number three receiver in trips. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times the like the opposite outside receiver will be number three in trips, especially sure. when they're playing like nub nub formations at the tight end. So I, I, I really think he's going to primarily play on the outside, um, but continue. I don't mean to interrupt. Anyway, my, my point is, I, I, my point is not this guy is locked in at one position or another, or you're wrong or anything. It's they have options, right? They, you know, they have swing, they have dudes who can swing, right? That you know, both Hudson and Holden could play on the inside or the outside, and they're proven commodities, you know, at both of those positions. So if they pick one or the other in order to cover, you know, some guy who's not working out, they don't screw themselves, right? So if the 
you know, so they got, you know, Troy Franklin has to play on the outside. If they can't get out of the four tall freshmen, right? Dickie, Casper, Lowe, and Cozart, none of whom we've seen before, right? Because Dickie and Cozart are true freshmen and Casper and Lowe are redshirt freshmen. All of them are blue chips, right? They're talent through the roof, right? Oozing with talent at the, you know, the other outside receiver position, but we just never seen them before. So I would rate it as pretty low odds that none of those four freshmen work out as being, you know, your other outside, you know, receiver opposite of Franklin. But if it doesn't, they could have Holden or Hudson, you know, play outside and it doesn't screw them on the inside because they have the other guy whose name starts with H and they have Johnson and they have Bryant and they have Josh Delgado if he ever gets healthy, right? Like these are, are multiple layers of options uh, uh, that no other school has access to every other school. When I did my entire Pac-12 preview series, every other school was like, we have this guy for this position and he needs to work out and never get hurt. The end. And, and that's yeah. not the position that Oregon is in. Oregon is a position where they are, you know, overflowing with talent with guys who can play in multiple positions so that the A plan and the, even the B plan, might, you know, uh, it is okay if the A or the B plan don't work out because, you know, the C plan is still better than everybody else's A plan. I, the, the way I look at this room is this, like, Hudson, I think, is going to have a substantially decreased role on this team. Like, if they were cool with having Hudson be their their second leading receiver, I don't think they would have taken three transfer portal receivers this year. I think that they were very obviously looking to upgrade there. And so when I think of Chris Hudson, no disrespect to Chris Hudson if he's listening to the podcast, I think I think he's a guy that they're looking to upgrade from. Um, I, I think that they're looking to get bigger, either get longer and bigger or way more explosive. Um, and so I think... I feel really good about Franklin. I feel really good about Johnson. I think that Gary Bryant brings an interesting dynamic to the team. Um, and I think Treshawn Holden has a lot of ability as long as he can keep his drops under control. Um, but the real upside to me in this room comes with guys like Jurian Dickey and Kyler Casper, who I think are going to be ready to play more sub- substantial roles. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that take? I mean, yes, that's, I mean, that's obviously correct. They obviously wanted to upgrade on, on uh, Hudson's talent. I'm saying that Hudson is an established receiver and he's established at being able to play inside or outside and therefore establishes a floor. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, uh, upon which, you know, you have multiple, you know, talented, but unproven prospects, you know, who, you know, who may or may not, you know, pop. I think it's unlikely that, you know, all four of those guys fail to pop because Jesus Christ, they're just oozing with talent, but like in size, that's the other thing. I mean, it's crazy how much size they have here, but like, you know, the, the worst case scenario is that you have Chris Hudson playing outside receiver. That's your worst case scenario. Chris Hudson was playing outside receiver opposite Troy Franklin last year in the number six rated offense in F plus with Bo Nix throwing it to him. That's your worst case scenario. No, it's a really good situation. I'm definitely, I hope I'm, I'm not selling it short as if it's not. I guess my thing is when I look at this offense and you're looking to improve on what was a really strong offense from a year ago, the place that you could do that is by getting more explosive around Troy Franklin at receiver. Um, and I think they very clearly went to address that in the portal this off season. I, I think the, I, I think the way that they went to improve I think that they wanted to improve with their 
uh, freshman at the outside receiver and uh, and the portal guys are because they wanted to take the top off on the inside uh, because yep. that's what you know Johnson and Bryant's film really indicates and I mean it knocks your socks off uh, I think that people are really sleeping on Tez Johnson I mean his film is incredible pro football yeah. focus which I don't always love uh, you know rated him as the two set number two most valuable receiver behind Marvin Harrison Jr. from Ohio State like it is incredible his acceleration is astonishing um and gary bryant jr's film was incredible too it's just that no one's ever seen it because he his only film is from usc at 2021 uh which nobody was watching because that was their joke year um but i mean oh my god like his he was the best inside you know inside burner uh the 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 pac-12 had in 2021 and like nobody watched it like i was the only one who was watching and a bunch of usc fans <laughs> who were crying you know like yeah like I was the only one who was watching it and smiling. <laughs> no, I, I, again, I did pretty extensive film study on all these receivers. And I'm, I, again, I think like when I look at Holden and I compare him to like what Coda was a year ago, Coda, the thing about Coda is he was extremely shorthanded. Um, but Holden has substantially higher athletic upside. He's bigger. Um, he's definitely faster. And so I think that there's going to be some, some really good opportunity for him um, to be more of a possession guy. And I think that with, with Johnson and Brian in the slot and Franklin on the outside, there's you have that vertical pressing sp speed already in place on the roster. And so whatever you get out of those four freshmen on the outside is just a bonus. And, if, and I really do think that we're going to get something out of those guys this year. I mean, that's where, to me, that's where the offense, if it's going to improve at all, the, which is like, it's hard to do. It was the number six offense last year. Like to me, given that the quarterback's coming back, the running back is coming back. It, uh, you know, their, their best outside receiver is coming back. You know, Hudson, whatever you think about him establishes a great floor. Uh, to me, the, you know, the, their inside short and intermediate games, you know, are all still there. And I don't think substantially they change. And I think the marginal value to improve on Hudson is actually not huge where I think they have the potential is improving on how they, I'm not trying to throw shade at Dante Thornton right now, but how they use Dante Thornton was not as maximized as it could have been. And what I am excited about um, in terms of maximizing value is Jury and Dickey. Yep. Yeah, I agree. And I've heard unbelievable things about him this offseason coming yeah. off an injury, but still being really, really dominant. So um, Jury and Dickey, because that provides a different dimension. And then Tez Johnson or and or uh, uh, Gary Bryant taking the top off, just burning it like just because that takes a safety out of the equation. Like, yeah, it, it, that's the only way I can see this offense like going from six any any higher. Like, I, I actually think this offense is pretty close to being capped out. Yeah, I mean, I think I think where it gets better is if you get more explosive in the passing game, right? Like, I, I think it was good yeah, in the exactly. passing game last year, but, like, average air yards per target were a little bit lower than, like, some of the top offenses in the last, like, five to ten years. And so if you can get that vertical stretch, that only helps your run game. And I think it's going to not necessarily need it, because I, but I, I do think that with a new offensive line, it's going to take some time to gel. Um, and so 
being able to take the top off and get get teams playing that too high shell and creating some right other exactly the, the dominant that was the thing the dominance of Oregon's run game caused you know Oregon to focus on sort of a short and intermediate passing game you know a lot in order to take advantage of that and ju- they just were not taking advantage as much as they could have at blowing the top off and pulling a safety out you know and I mean, that's, I mean, yeah, exactly. Between the additions of Dickie, Johnson, and Bryant, it, creating the possibility of pulling a safety, at, you know, out and just blowing, you know, effectively making it so that you're only playing against 10 guys. Like, yeah, that's it. That's the potential. Yeah, I mean, to me, the, the, the thing about this room, and it, you know, is a little bit reminiscent of what we talked about with the running back room is, I mean, there's there's a lot of guys that that could play. Uh, you know, some that someone say they should play, right? So how do you how do you split up touches? How do you get everyone, you know, opportunities? It's a lot easier to at wide receiver than running back, I guess, which is the plus side. Um, give everyone opportunities and and kind of how do you keep everyone happy? I think that's the interesting part, uh, and we're going to talk about this throughout the roster. The you know, obviously the best man plays, right? And that's that's the hallmark of every great program. But there's still there's still like you gotta keep you gotta keep a happy locker room, right? That's important for your culture and your team success and all the little things, right? So I think that's the part that the elite programs have have figured out, right? How do they not get derailed by internal uh, you know, unhappiness about people's roles and whatnot? And, and that's an interesting dynamic across certain positions on the roster that I'll be interesting interested to observe and this is one of those positions that i i'm looking at that at all right at that i guess we're moving on to tight end a position that will not have that uh that dynamic at play considering the uh the depleted amount of of bodies and at least uh highly regarded and proven bodies in that room compared to some of the other ones we've been talking about so obviously you know the Terrence Ferguson is the the big man on campus coming back in the tight end room. Uh, All Pac-12 contributor last year, got hurt in the spring. He's been limited, expected to be full go, you know, for game one. And then you got um, Patrick Herbert coming back, who's battled injuries in the past. There's a couple transfers and then the the true freshman out of Idaho. So, Hithliday, why don't you kind of run down what you think of the tight end room and then we'll kick it back and forth with QB. Uh, assuming that everybody is healthy in this room, then they have more than what they need. And there's, you know, zero problems here. In fact, it's the best tight end room in the conference, um, you know, barring USC ever figuring out how to use their five stars, um, which I rate as low odds. So therefore, I would just wholeheartedly say best tight end room uh, in the conference in terms of actual utilization. Uh, the question is simply like what the actual, you know, health and depth is, you know, for the room, you know, we can getting some happy news about Taryn Sturg- Ferguson's um, uh, uh, health. Uh, I'll believe it when I see it, which, you know, we should be starting to get uh, camp reports, you know, soon. Um, uh, he's an excellent tight end, assuming that his arm, you know, is healthy. He provides everything that Will Stein needs out of a tight end. Uh, their tight end at UTSA, who's an interesting character, is Oscar Cardenas, um, who is 6'4", 285 pounds, which is quite large. Uh, and uh, and yet, they rarely had him in line blocking. They detached him on the majority of plays. Um, and he was actually a pretty big receiver for his, uh, for, for them. Um, but it was sort of like, you know, short stuff. And then he'd run over, you know, tiny, uh, you know, G5 defensive backs, um, which was 
also fun to watch. Um, uh, Terrence Ferguson's also pretty big, pretty, pretty big guy. I think he's going to be pushing 260 pounds, um, this year. Uh, and, uh, he also likes to run over, uh, little dudes. Um, uh, you know, uh, the, to me, the interesting question is going to be, uh, Patrick Herbert. Uh, you know, he came in in 2019. Um, he's, uh, he, you know, has been battling injuries. You know, it's not like he wasn't getting catches last year. He got six catches last year, including a touchdown. You know, they did use him. It was just, you know, Maliki Matavau, uh was, even though he was younger, he was sort of farther along in terms of he hadn't missed uh, developmental time. And then Kim McCormick, you know, God bless him. Uh, you know, Dr. McCormick uh, had been around long enough um, that, you know, he was getting more play and, 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 and probably deserved it. Um, so like, I, I just don't know where Herbert is in his development. You know, that's two, we're going to have to wait and see. Um, I think that in terms of where the rest of the pecking order goes, um, I think that, the ceiling for the true freshman Kenyon Sadiq is probably higher than the transfer that they got Casey Kelly. But right now Sadiq is about 220 pounds. I watched him in the spring game. I think they would probably like him to pack on some more weight before he starts seriously playing. And I think the reason that they got Casey Kelly is that he's ready to go right now. He has effectively been Ole Miss's starting tight end. And if you want to know what that effectively means, you're going to have to read my article about him at Addicted to Quack. It's, um, it's quite a colorful story. Um, but anyway, that dude's real big. Um, he's, you know, similar size to all the other, uh, tight ends I've been talking about. Um, and Lowe's running over dudes got real good hands. Um, you know, if you need a possession, you know, guy, you know, catch the ball on a six yard stop route and then run over dudes on the way to a first down, like Casey Kelly's your man. Um, you know, I, I actually think they've added adequate depth to this tight end room that all the panicking that you keep hearing from Oregon fans about like, Oh my God, this room is down to nobody. I'm so worried about it is like really overblown. I'm not worried about this room at all. Unless, it is the case that everybody's still hurt, but I don't think so, that's true. Yeah. My, my concern with this room is that the top end talent is Ferguson. Um, and then probably a true freshman in Sadiq who athletically is fantastic, but I think it's probably unfair to expect him to be equal to what our tight end two was last year as a blocker um, in, in his first year of college. So like I, I think I would rather have Montevideo and McCormick than Kelly and Herbert as my second and third tight ends. Now, obviously, I think that's a pretty easy thing to say. Those were it was a really really elite room that we had a year ago. Um, all all indications are that that Terrence Ferguson's back healthy. Really excited about him. I think he's the best tight end in the conference, um, either him or Keithy. But I think that Ferguson's mm-hmm. a better, more well rounded player. Um, and then. Behind him, I'm 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 a little bit less certain than you are. I mean, I, I watched a lot of uh, Kelly film. He's okay. I I don't I don't see him as better than Cam McCormick. Oh, um, I agree. I, I don't think he is either. I don't I, I, as either a blocker or a receiver. Um, I think he's got good hands. He's got reliable hands, but I think he's just I think he's just um, like I think he's replacement level. Uh, yeah, I don't really- I don't think he has a sort of speed in order to do the stuff that Matavau does. I just mean that it's not yeah. like he's you know and then herbert's health like, i see a bunch again, of tight I, ends in this conference who are only blockers and like the ball would bounce off their helmets and like that's not casey helmy yeah no i agree with you on that and i think i guess really where i'm getting at with this is like patrick uh, patrick herbert's health 
is a concern to me. And it's not because he's hurt right now. It's but because he's been hurt basically every season since he's been at Oregon. And so I'm just really hoping that we can get a um, – get a full healthy season out of him and he could show some durability. Do you think, I think that he was injured last year or he was just the fourth guy in the tight end room? Both. I, I mean, he, I think he was the fourth guy in the tight end room, but my understanding was he, there was points last year where he was hurt. I, I suspect that he's further along in his development. And this is going to be just fine. Is yeah, my, is I hope my you're right. Take. I, I, my, my take is that Sadiq is going to be the second best tight end in this room, but he's going to be more of a, kind of like a pseudo receiver and he's going to play mostly detached um, i don't think I'm he's totally going to play like, much at all i think they're going to put in herbert as their second tight end and kelly is their third tight end oh i disagree okay i'm I, gonna i disagree I, on that one show bet hifliday I, I, I bet you that sadiq plays more snaps this year than herbert hmm okay. i i i may have talked to someone who spent some time at multiple practices this spring and was very very bullish on Sadiq in the passing game. It's just yes. he's so skinny, you know. They're I mean, gonna, maybe as a wire receiver, but That's like, do you saying. mean he's like a real <laughs> actual tight end? Well, no, not, I think not in line. I, said, I, no. I think he's primarily going to play detached. I think mm-hmm. he's going to walk an age back. He's going to be a move tight end. I guess I the reason gonna... that I just don't worry about this is because as long as they have at any given time, you, you know, two playable tight ends, that that's adequate for uh, Will Stein's offense. His 100%. offense just it... simply, his offense simply doesn't run through tight ends. And so therefore, I... like, it's just like, this doesn't concern me. I agree. It, it would I'm only saying... concern me if both ferguson and herbert were hurt and so therefore they had to go with kelly and sadiq yeah and i'm just being um i'm just being nitpicky here but i think that if there's any room that got less talented on this team this is the one this is the only room that i think is less talented than it was a year ago well yeah that's Um, true and and so uh, you could make an argument for the offensive line in terms of effective usable talent but okay yeah, I mean, fair enough. I mean, but the the point stands is that this room, from a quantity standpoint and a quality standpoint, has more than enough relative to what it's going to need. Um, given that we're going to play, be playing a lot more eleven personnel, and the receiver room is substantially deeper than it was a year ago. Yeah, exactly. You, like, would, would, if this were if this were UCLA, which lives and dies based on its uh, you know, its its tight end production, or or Utah, which lives and dies on its you know tight end production, I'd be sweating bullets. Uh, based on you know, like, oh my God, Terrace Ferguson's got to get healthy. You know, like that. You know, my season, you know, is dependent on this. Uh, it, that's not the case for Oregon. So I'm not sweating it. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think it's not a room that really concerns me. I just, if having Terrence Ferguson raise healthy, raises the ceiling of the offense in a way that nobody else on does. So um, from that room, well, so <laughs> I can think I, of I, one player whose health is paramount. Well, you know, I'm saying from the tight end. Yes. I mean, he, it's true. He, he is unique in his, in his, um, like I would say that, the drop off from Ferguson to the second tight end is greater than the drop off from the starter to the second player at every position on the team save quarterback. I I just don't know if that's true because we uh, the amount of eyes we've gotten on Patrick Herbert has been like it, there it is entirely plausible that Patrick Herbert is a great tight end and he was just behind three other great tight ends and even Kenny Dillingham didn't have the th- that much use for that many tight ends and yeah. it could be that, that he was just waiting for this opportunity 
We can agree to disagree on that. I think that we've seen enough of Herbert to be able to project based off his athletic traits that he's he's a solid, passable college tight end, but he's probably not an elite player. All right. With that, we are going to take another quick break, and we'll be right back to talk about the offensive line. All right, and welcome back. We're talking offensive line now. Maybe we should split this up into interior and and then tackles. Does that make sense to both of you? It's fine. Okay, sure. so let's start on the interior first. Um, you know, QB, I'll let you lead this one off. There's a lot of competition here for three starting spots. Yeah, I think that this is probably going to be best off as more of a dialogue because there's just a lot of guys, a lot of names to go over here. This, this is the way I look at the interior of the offensive line this year. I think that Jackson Powers Johnson and um, and Marcus Harper are starters. One of them will start at center. The other one's going to start at guard. And then it's for competition for the third spot. Do you agree or disagree with that sentiment? hundred uh, percent agree. Okay. So with that as the baseline, then you have you have two two new guys from the transfer portal in um, in uh, uh, Struther from ECU and Angelau from Texas. I'm much more of a Struther fan than I am an Angelau fan. I think they're both passable, um, like starter level Pac-12 players. Uh, which gives me a, like makes me happy and gives me a lot of confidence for the offensive line, but I I would I feel a lot better with Struther starting as opposed to um, the alternative with Angelau. What about Jones? Oh. You have Jones in that competition at all? I th- I would rather have Jones be a swing player and be someone that's like next first guy off the bench. Um, just my my personal opinion. Um, I I think the reason that they went and got as many guys as they did is because they want to upgrade on Jones. I think everything that QB said about Chris Hudson applies to Stephen Jones like times two. I 100% agree. I think Stephen Jones has been one of the more inconsistent players on the team from an effort standpoint over the years. And I think that like going out and getting two proven guys, one guy who started a ton of games at at, at the Big 12 level, and then another guy who I think is more of an upside play. Um, with Struther at guard, um, Angelau just like like brief scouting reports based on my full study, and feel free to disagree with me, Hith. Like I I, I really respect I, your opinion on this. I do. I, I like Angelau's film better than Struther, but it's not a big preference. Okay, yeah. So my my issue with Angelau is I don't I I think he's actually a pretty poor mover laterally. Uh, I think he's very stiff, and like so if he doesn't make good first contact, I think he kind of flames out. Whereas I think Struther's a better athlete, and I think he'll be better in pass pro. Um, but again, I think that like we're splitting hairs with those two. I think they're both better players than the alternatives at guard uh, outside of Harper or Jackson Powers Johnson. Well, I mean, I don't know who the alternatives are. It's Jones and Yuli, right? Yeah, Yuli, and then um, heard some really good things about uh, Poncho, uh, l- the little the little Laulu, um, uh, the true freshman who just came in. Yep, hmm. I. I... I'm not a big fan of true freshman on the line, but that's an interesting. No, no, I don't. I'm not as a starter. I'm just saying that, like, I I think he's going to be a guy that could push for a, um, for a like second second half of the rotation. I I mean, I I think this question is simply going to be decided on whoever's healthiest. Like, I I I sort of suspect that if Angelou. I think the staff likes Angelou better, and the reason that uh, th- I think that's true is they wouldn't got him first. Well, it's interesting because a different offensive line coach recruited Angelou than recruited Strother, mm. and so like I kind of get the opposite. I think that 
Uh, again, it's going to be interesting to see. I don't. I I think we're splitting hairs on this. I mean, the issue with Angelo is that he's he's he missed all of 2022 with an injury, and then he's missed all of spring with an injury, and so it's like I don't know if he's going to be ready to play. And I think that's why they went and got Struther. And and my beef with Struther, not that I think it should be dispositive, and I respect your opinion as well, uh, is that like Struther's a leaner. Um, like he really, he anticipates contact and leans into it and well, they both are, <laughs> well, yes, I, I mean, it's true, but like Angelo can take it and where Struther has gotten into trouble, it's been, he sort of starts to lose his center of gravity. Um, at any rate, we're definitely in agreement that they're both like, they, they would both constitute substantial upgrades over Stephen Jones, who was their starter or sort of at right guard. Um, they were doing substantial rotations at the guard spots. It's a whole story um, last year. And actually since 2020, last three years, over two different position coaches, they've been doing substantial rotations um, at guard to the point where they're actually pretty well experienced at this position, even though they're losing, you know, a bunch of starters, you know, they, they bring back guys who had you know Harper and Powers Johnson and Jones um and Connerly you know start talking about the tackles you know all, all have a substantial number of reps due to you know all the rotation plus the you know the backup minutes that uh that you know Iuli and uh and Laulu the, the older Laulu uh got you know are substantial like they, they actually planned for this transition pretty well last year uh but I'm getting ahead of myself um uh, yeah, all these, all the interior guards are substantial uh, improvements over Jones, and so whatever the outcome of the battle between Angelou and Struther is, like I'm happy. Yeah, hundred percent. Like I think that either way, you're upgrading, right? So, um, and then a tackle. I'm gonna have a little bit of a hot take. I think that we're better at tackle this year than we were a year ago. Um, well, we not have guys who are gonna actually be tackles. Yes, like you notice how both Laulu and Bass are playing guard in the NFL. Yeah, precisely. Right now? Yeah, so like we're actually going to have at the tackle athletes to tackle, um, which is going to raise the ceiling of the offense. Whether they're going to be better in the run game right away, probably not. Um, but I think over the longer term of the season, the upside is substantially higher with this group. So uh, the way I see it is I think that Connerly has his job at left tackle locked up and the position battle is between uh, Cornelius and Silva at right tackle. My hot take is that I think that Silva is actually much more of a contender for the position that I think a lot of people just immediately penciled in Cornelius, you know, because he was so highly rated as the transfer from Rhode Island. Um, but I, I think people are sort of underrating Silva. I really liked his film. Um, and how he performed in the spring game. I, I know, I know spring games, but like he was a highly rated, you know, dude, his frame is excellent for the position. Um, you know, he has a ton of experience. I mean, he has exactly as much experience as Cornelius does. Um, and I think that's going to be a real battle. Um, and whoever loses, I think is going to be a great backup. Yeah. I, uh, I don't think it's going to be that close personally. Um, I, there's, like we talk about experience, like yes, Cornelius was at the FCS level, but there's lots of good film of him going against legitimately elite power five ends. Like he played Jared Verse when Jared Verse was at Albany. Mm -hmm. um, and then he also has really good film against Pittsburgh, who had three defensive linemen drafted in the first four rounds of the draft last year. Um, and so I, I just, I think that from a, I really like Silva's long term upside. I really like his frame um, and the skill set that's there. But I think that in the shorter term, Cornelius is the more developed player, and he's and because of that, he's going to be he's going to be the guy that wins the job at right tackle. Um, 
And so I think Silva will be the first tackle off the bench. I think Jones will be the second tackle off the bench. And then or, or Jones or Ope will be the second um, tackle off the bench. Uh, Ope uh, is an interesting story. That dude is the amount of uh, that he has transformed his body since he came in in 2020 is astonishing. It's as much as anybody. I mean, Sala did it, Bass did it, Penne did it. But I think that Ope is the most extreme example of like body reworking that we've seen. But do you agree with that, my framework that Connerly has his job locked up and it's oh, yeah, 100 percent oh, tackle? Everyone I've talked to says that Connerly is the next first round draft pick at tackle out of Oregon. Like they yeah. they love him. They think he is like he's lived he's up a real to deal. Feeling. Yeah. yeah. And I and I think that Cornelius um in the spring there was an adjustment to the power five level on a like a snap by snap basis. But athletically the skill set's there. And I think that ultimately because of that, he'll end up playing more um early than um than silva will but i do think silva will end up being a good tackle before his time is done at oregon do you agree with i think the the... go ahead go ahead do you agree with the proposition that i made that like despite losing four guys who were you know are arguably started like three guys who were clearly starters and then a walk who was doing the rotation thing that i alluded to like they actually planned for this transition pretty well and and are in a pretty good spot in terms of like level of experience. Uh, uh, I mean, I, yeah. in a perfect world, we would have a little bit more depth at tackle that's been on campus longer and played more. Um, I, I, I like what we have, but I, I would feel better if we had like one more high end tackle prospect, but I think that's probably true for every, every team in the country. Um, and I think that this, again, I think that this group has a lot more, I think this group has a much higher uh, upside than the, past um, version of the Oregon offensive line that we saw with that, with that Forsyth walk uh, bass and solid group. Do you think yeah. that Steven Jones can play tackle in a pinch? Yes. So the way that I view it then is they run five deep at tackle uh, Connerly, Cornelius Silva Jones and Ope uh, and they run five deep at guard you know, Harper, Powers, Johnson, Angelou, Struther, and Jones again. I'm counting him. Oh, and Yuli, uh, I guess six deep. Uh, and seven if you want to count the younger. Uh, well, yeah, again, and I'm, I'm just I'm bringing that up because, again, we talked to some people today and there was some some good intel out of the first couple of days of practice. And one of those nuggets was that Poncho's looked like a good player already. So that's never a bad thing when you're hearing good things about a, a, a freshman offensive lineman after one day of pads. But, I mean, if that's – if that's true, and I mean, I'm double counting Stephen Jones, but if they run five deep at tackle and seven deep at guard in terms of playable dudes, like, yeah, you know, you, you can't touch this unit in the Pac-12 for, oh, God. you know, number of playable dudes. Not for depth. Yeah. You know, for, for depth. And then, like, you know, let's start listing talent ratings. Josh Connerly's a five-star. Powers Johnson was a .92. Angelau is a .94. Cornelius is rated as a .92 transfer value. Jones is a .91. Uh, Silva is a .89. Is Juco. Yuli is a .92. Uh, the younger uh, Laulu is a .89. Just, like, you can't touch this unit for on-paper talent. Like, 
Yeah, man. You know, so, so let me get this straight. And like how many of these guys were starters last, you know, the last time that they played Angelou was a starter. Cornelius was a starter. Struther was a starter. Silva was a starter. The Juku level It's just like, you, you know, for there, there are a lot of folks who are like trying to come up with a reason why, you know, Oregon's offense might take a step back and they you know, sort of located the offensive line, you know, <laughs> given the offensive yeah. line, you know, departures is a reason to do it. But it's like, I, and, and frankly, yeah, sure. You know, given how good the line was last year and given that they are losing, you know, four guys that you call starters off of it, three of whom, you know, went to the, the NFL. Yeah, sure. You know, there probably should be a step back, but like they've planned very well for it. They brought in a ton of starting experience. There is a ton of talent. There is a ton of depth of playable guys, you know, uh, uh, several of whom are, are, are cross-trained, you know, in multiple positions. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade this unit for any unit in the Pac-12. I don't hesitate on that for a second. No, I, I, I think, think that the... Thing... Go ahead, go ahead, Doug. Yeah, so I, I think the thing I've been saying, because that you hear that all the time, right? Oh, you lost four-star. Like, you hear that from your rival teams, right, who think that's a reason your offense is going to take a step back. And, and more disappointingly, but not surprisingly in any way, shape, or form, the, the national quote-unquote experts who clearly don't watch Pac-12 football uh, very closely, you know, that's the that's the refrain you hear from a lot of them, right? And it's just a non-informed, uh, it's a non-informed point of view because they aren't looking at, you know, oh, you lost all these starts. So like, okay, well, the, the players that are going to be filling those four roles are the, 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 the you know, second-year five-star, and then the other three spots are going to be filled by guys who have had 20, 25, 30 starts each in their career. I mean, the, the experience is, or, or, or as a guy who beats out one of those guys in the case yeah. of it's, you know, one of these young guys like comes out of nowhere. Right. So, well, I mean, you'd it, have to have it's, access it's, to it's snap counts, which like, I don't, I don't know that any commentator is gets access to snap counts like that would require but it, but it doesn't some research that's research. deeper than it doesn't Twitter, take like... a lot of research to go oh they got struther they got angola they got they got these guys that have been on their bench for a couple of years and pull up oh those guys started a lot of games at their previous location like it doesn't take it doesn't take more than five minutes of research to to kind of i mean you could say okay there's how are they going to work as a unit are the guys that are coming in as good as the guys that were there last year they got drafted like that's all fair but just the surface level, you lost four starters. What are you going to do is a very lazy and uninformed uh, take. Well, it's like compared to UCLA, which also lost a bunch of guys to the NFL. And it's like, it's not nearly this layered, you know, like they went and got three low talent dudes who sucked at their last schools and are just going to plug them right in. They, and none of the guys that they retained from their previous years line played at all, you know, like it's a completely non-comparable situation, you know, and yet like everyone just sort of assumes, oh, well, Chip Kelly magic means that, you know, their run game is always going to work. Right. Uh, in fact, I, I believe one of the members of this podcast said exactly that the last time that we talked, like, I don't think it works that way way you know like i think you need to layer in your experience in the offensive line like i'm, I'm sort of an offensive line hawk uh in, in terms of like i think that you need to have a lot of experience i need i think they need to get in early and be gelling together and like i don't see you know an offensive line in the pack 12 that sort of like has all of the different factors that you need in order to succeed and survive a transition like this uh and in a way that like doesn't yeah, it causes me not to worry about, you know, for example, the number of portal based dudes that they're taking, which is something that concerns me for a lot of different lines throughout the Pac-12. Yeah, I, I think that this room 
I think that the the toughest guy to replace is is Forsyth. I think the experience, um, the fact like come make the line calls, things like that. Like that's all going to be a learning process for whoever replaces him. Um, and so I think that's where you're going to have also like outside of maybe the most important moment of the season against Washington last year, his snaps, he was extraordinarily consistent for the most part um, throughout his career. And so just making sure that that exchange is, is consistent and we in clean and we don't have a bunch of turnovers off of it um, is, is that's the first most important thing. But again, I, I think that the composition of this room is really strong. Um, and I think that we're, we're going to end up in a situation where people are going to be coming to, to the terms of the fact that we have the best offensive line in the conference probably a little bit later than they should. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think, you know, to kind of follow up with what you said earlier, Hithilday, like I, you know, if I look back over the last five, six, seven years, and I have never felt better about like the, the state of the offensive line, you know, from both a, talent standpoint quality standpoint as well as a depth and and a layering of classes standpoint right I, it feels like it's in the strongest position as a unit uh across all those facets that it's been in and i mean any at any point in mario's tenure i don't think it was as deep and as talented i mean as this. i love the 2019 line but like in the pit of my stomach was like well, what's going to happen in 2020 and actually it turned out okay in 2020 but i was worried all throughout 2019 because i knew that the entire line was done at the end of that year and like that's not th th because it wasn't layered that you know that was the magic word that you just used doug uh in, in a way that like that's not you know true for this line like there is a timer on this line actually for like 2025 uh you know it, it all sort of comes to a head but like boy that's down the road um and they got time to work on it um I do sort of worry about that, you know, all the portal based stuff. I think that that is sort of an artifact of going through of a the sort of the, the COVID, you know, issue sort of creates an eligibility hangover and then b the coaching change. And I think that locking up Lanning um, was sort of nice uh, for that. Like, I really hope they get off the portal treadmill. I definitely observe that when I look at all the other Pac-12 teams that they hop on this portal treadmill where like you know, uh, because experience and offensive lineman is the most valuable, you know, thing that coaches look for. And, and so they're like, well, this available dude in the portal is more experienced than the guy that I've been, you know, that I recruited out of the prep ranks. And so I'm going to get him. And so all of a sudden, you know, like, well, you can see where this is going, you know, that guy leaves and you go get another portal guy and you go get another portal guy and you never wind up playing, you know, your prep guys and you wind up on this treadmill that lasts forever. And like, I understand why Oregon stepped onto it once, but I, I hope they get off of it. They've been recruiting some good guys, you know, like, I, I hope this is a one-time thing. I think they will. I, I think they had to do it because they needed to fill some spots, but I think this is true just in general portal philosophy for Oregon. I think they want to, I want, they want to grow the roster from the high school ranks um, where a lot of schools don't like UCLA yeah. and chip is a good example of that. Right. I think you, you, we talked about that earlier, but like I, I like Dan Lanning, they know that if you want to get like truly elite talent, like how many of the guys that are getting drafted in the first three rounds of the draft are transferring into the schools that they get drafted from? I Not mean, very many other than quarterbacks. None. Yeah like Gonzo, we were really lucky last year to have a guy like that, right? But that's not a sustainable way of developing a roster with tons of top-end talent, and that top-end talent is what it takes to win championships. Um, and so, like, 
I, I agree with you, Hithleday, 100% on that. Yeah, it's really clear. I mean, I, I not only studied all the Pac-12 rosters, you know, I, I studied all, all Oregon's big, you know, out-of-conference opponents, and I've been lucky enough to, you know, studied some Blue Bloods, you know, uh, in, in recent history, you know, uh, Ohio State and Georgia and Oklahoma and, uh, you know, a few others. And, like, you know, I, I don't see... Uh, you know, I see conveyor belts with those teams. I see, you know, they get five stars behind five stars behind five stars and like they get, you know, and, and they train them up, you know, like you, 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 you start, you, you know, you, you develop and then you back up and then you start and then you go to the NFL and then you repeat, you know, and, and you know, the portal roulette stuff that I see throughout the Pac-12, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a recipe to stay a mid-level program. Um, and, and it's sort of a trap that you can get into that's hard to get out of. Um, and, and I think that probably Dan Lanning is aware of that. And, uh, and, and you know, I, I'm, I, I'm really interested to see how this plays out because the offensive line, uh, you know, I think they're sort of due to some injury situations that happened over the spring. Uh, you know, I think they're sort of forced into uh, this situation. But, you know, I'm definitely keeping my eye on how they choose to, you know, move forward with the prep recruits. Yeah, and I, I don't think the portal strategy is. I mean, I would be shocked if that was like a long, you know, a long term strategy. I think this is year two. They're trying to fill holes that exist that they either inherited or, or, or are there because they they missed out a little bit in in the last couple of classes in their transitional class and then last year's class, right? So I think the twenty twenty four class on the offensive line is is critical, as you mentioned, you know, because the twenty twenty five season is when you kind of start seeing the need for a new wave of starters and, and contributors to come in. So that makes the 24 class because you want a red shirt year for offensive line, you know, for the most part. So it makes the 24 class kind of critical. And then obviously beyond that every year you want to recruit, you know, probably four to five, four to five guys every year. So I, I, I would, I would be shocked if, if the plan isn't to do just that. And the portal is like for all other positions, the portal is a strategy to, to fix your misses. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's ultimately what, what they're doing. And I think early on in the development of their program, they were going to, they were going to go to that more often than they will in year three, four and five. It's like, uh, it's almost similar to, you know, obviously the number, the amount of turnover that happened in the program this, this off season, right. And, you know, 30 something guys transferring out of Oregon and, and a lot of people have looked at that in different ways. And I would say like that to me, that's a one year kind of thing, right? If, if 30 guys are transferring out of your program every year, then I would be very concerned. I, I'm not concerned at all with that happening in year in this year, because I think it was very deliberate and very intentional for all the reasons we've talked about. But if 30 guys transfer out next year, I, I, I'm going to start being a little more concerned, but I don't, ex I have no expectation that that's going to be the case. I, I mean, the reason that doesn't this concern me is the guys who are transferring out were, you know, 90% of them were the guys who were transferring out for the right reasons, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, that's where you got to dig below the surface like before, right? Exactly. Uh, anything more on the offensive line? No, I think we've covered the offense really well. It, any any wrap up on the just the offense as a whole? Maybe kind of. Uh, oh, I do have one more offensive line question. I wanted to pose at both of you a little bit in jest, but uh, is there a position between guard and center where that would um, help Marcus Harper uh, get less uh, illegal man downfield penalties versus the other? This uh, is kind of said in joke, <laughs> in well, jest. 
centers tend to do that less because they, they play more three down fronts in the Pac-12. Yep. All right. Marcus Har- Harper is your starting center. <laughs> Sorry, Marcus. I love you. You're awesome. Uh, and you're going to excel at whichever position. Uh, I mean, the thing at. about him that I think a lot of people are missing too is like he was not a starter going into last year, and he got a lot better as the year went on and played really, yeah, really did. well. He and he's also as he's also funny as as hell. Like if you like you get him in a setting where he you know he showed up at one of the uh, signing day events and was just like gregarious and entertaining and and just great to you know so the players are really hit or miss in those settings right like some of them just they don't want to have the limelight and aren't comfortable with the microphone and but he was he was phenomenal so I know we're going way off topic any I, any thoughts on the I um, will say ahead. on that topic. Uh, when I wrote up my article about elite Terry in his year, uh, coaching the offensive line at Hawaii, which was a bad team, but the offensive line was clearly the best part of that team. I put an entire clip compilation of when, uh, Hawaii's offensive linemen, not running past three yards on RPO plays. Like it seemed like, uh, uh, coach Terry was kind of a bear. Uh, on that question, so uh, maybe he'll coach him up on that question. I mean, that's good. Point I mean, those, those those penalties actually matter. Like we can joke yeah. about it all we want, but like that that puts you behind the chains. Like, I mean, most of those plays came on Bo Nix improvising plays. They're really, if you want to have a conversation with somebody about those plays, you should have a con- that conversation with Bo Nix, <laughs> not Marcus Harper. No, for sure. I don't disagree with you. All right. Any thoughts on kind of just in general, like, you know, where do you see, obviously you said, you know, six, six ranked offense last year. Do you feel like this is the best offense in the conference, the fifth best offense in the conference? And then where do you see it like kind of compared to the rest of the nation as well? I think there's a lot of really good offenses in the conference. So I think like the top, the top grouping of Oregon, Washington and USC, I, I don't know where it fits in those three. We'll see when the season ends, but I, I think it's going to be for sure in that grouping. I think this is the most. Um, uh, I think this is the most Swiss Army knife of the offenses. You know, like all, all the other offenses that are like excellent offenses in the Pac-12. It's like they. I can identify one thing uh, in particular that they're awesome at, um, and, and I think Oregon is awesome at a lot of things. Um, like I, I, you know, Caleb Williams is a phenomenal quarterback, and I think that Bo Nix is like a notch below Caleb Williams uh, at, at those things. But I don't think that USC has uh, Oregon's versatility in its offense, its uh, its running backs, its uh, offensive line, uh, the way that it can use its tight ends. Um, um, uh, you know, um, I don't think that, you know, Washington has the red zone execution ability, um, or really the ability to do more than just one thing. Uh, I definitely don't think Andy Ludwig has the ability to do more than just one thing. I don't think that Jonathan Smith has the ability to do more than just one thing. Um, I don't think that Chip Kelly has the ability to use a pocket passer quarterback, uh, you know, et cetera. Um, I, you know, in terms of like, do it all, uh, respond to any situation, you know, over-specialize and you breed in weakness. QB, you said it already. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's clearly top three in the conference, top 10 level in the country. Um, it's certainly not having to go up against Georgia and have all of those uh, metrics drag you down. will will help, <laughs> help the numbers at the end of the year too. All right. I think with that, we're going to wrap up this episode covering the offense. And uh, 
We will be back very soon with Hithloday again to talk about the defensive side of the ball. Any parting shots from either one of you? Addicted to quack for Hithloday and never reigns in on this podcast. QB, anything you want to sign off with? No, uh, just make sure you're reading Hithloday's work and subscribing to his podcast.